Eric had just one life goal. Only one. He desperately wanted to become a great athlete. He worked hard at it and he was pretty good. As you can see from the picture, Eric had a bit of success and this spurred on his hope that one day he might not only make it as a pro, but he would possibly be able to win big things. Maybe a medal, maybe even gold. But then disappointment came as it so often does. Eric's career was tragically cut short when he sustained a serious injury. It left his dreams in tatters and his life goal was quite literally stopped in its tracks. Let me introduce you to another two people. This is Dave and Emma, two good-looking folks, as you can see. And unlike many of the other folks that entered into Fame Academy, these folks could actually sing. And uh, they got past the judges and the various other folks and made it down to the final two, you know, the head-to-head, where they have the public vote. Emma won it, won up for the girls. Dave came second. And both of them signed lucrative record deals. Without hardly a moment's warning, they were fulfilling their life goals, namely to be rich and to be famous. However, the dream didn't last long. For as it so quickly does, their public popularity soon waned. And as the fans lost interest, so did the record companies as well. Obscurity was hard to take. Here's another lady. Her name is Jane. Jane had many talents in life, although she didn't like to sing or play sports. Her real passion was in relationships. She was a bit of a romantic and she dreamed of having a stable, happy family life. took a while for Mr. Wright to come along and the ladies are saying, doesn't it always? But eventually he did and soon after, children came as well. It was all going so well. Until one day, quite out of the blue, Jane's husband walked out on her. Her life goal shattered. Finally, can I introduce you to one more person? This guy's name is Tom. And unlike these other folks, Tom's actually doing quite well. No pipe dreams for him. But as you can see, Tom's a businessman. You can see from the laptop there. And a very successful businessman at that. He seems to be fulfilling his life goal, namely to be successful, to be respected, and to be very wealthy. However, Tom's smart enough to be a realist. He knows he has a long road ahead with many potential pitfalls. He's also a bit of an existentialist thinker too. He knows that this will only last a short while. Realizing that no matter how much he accumulates in life, death will ultimately take these things from him. So, he lives as best he can to fulfill his goals, his dream, knowing that ultimately these goals are futile. Now, if these characters and their ambitions, their goals, raise any question for us this evening, it is this. Are there any goals in life which we can have that will not be stopped or hindered in the end by something or other? Or to put it another way, is there such a thing as an unstoppable goal? 
a life ambition which those circumstances which happen to each one of us, difficult circumstances, won't eventually thwart. And perhaps most importantly, is there an ambition which will not be ultimately stopped by death itself? If so, what? I want to introduce you to another man. A man who also had goals in life. However, unlike these other people we've looked at, this gentleman is not fictional. He was a man in history, just like us, who had at least two main goals in life. One, a task that he carried out, which could not be hindered, even through the most difficult circumstances. The other, a life mission, which even death itself could not stop. The man's name was Paul. And we find out about his goals in the passage which was read earlier on this evening. You might want to turn again in your Bible and have it open in front of you. It's Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 to 21, page 1178 in the Pew Bibles. Now, this passage is part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in a town called Philippi. Paul, as you perhaps know, wrote many of the letters in the New Testament. But this letter, the letter to the Philippians, has a bit of a different feel to it than many others. Probably because, unlike in so many of the other letters that Paul wrote, he's not dealing with a big theological problem. Instead, this is what scholars sometimes refer to as a friendship letter, in which Paul explains his own circumstances and attempts to encourage the Philippians in theirs. And it's perhaps because of this fail that we get a glimpse into the heart and mind of Paul that perhaps we don't get anywhere else. We see a bit about what makes him tick, what his goals are, what his life ambitions are. And in this section that we've read, Paul is wanting to bring the Philippian Christians up to speed with all the things which have recently taken place in his life. To the moment when he is writing this, 2,000 years ago for us, but present tense, for them. And that's what Paul does in the first set of verses, verses 12 to verse 18. It's a reflection on the present, or more accurately, it was a reflection on things up until the present. Paul conveys what has happened to him, verse 12. And we need to understand here that as Paul writes, he's not just conveying some information, listing some circumstances that the Philippians were unaware of. Instead, it's almost certain that the Philippians already knew what had happened to Paul. But Paul wrote this section so that they would understand what had happened to him and interpret it in the right kind of way. Now, we might ask, what had happened to Paul? Well, as you see from the passage, he was in chains. We might say in sort of loose language he was in prison, although actually he was probably under house arrest if as many scholars think he was writing this uh, from Rome. The key thing, though, is not where Paul was in chains, but that he was in chains. That was the issue for the Philippians. You see, they may have wondered what negative effects Paul's chains might have on the spread of the gospel. We need to remember that in the early church, Paul was a key figure in the spreading of the gospel. It might not be too outrageous to say he was the forefront prong of God's mission to the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world. 
He was a pioneer church planter who went into places that many other Christians were afraid to go. So, since he was in chains, what about the gospel? Would it be hindered? Paul's answer to that question is a resounding no. For this gospel, which he lived for, this lifetime task, was not something of his own doing. It came from God. And therefore, through his circumstances, it had not been hindered. In actual fact, just the opposite. For Paul says of the gospel, not on the decrease, but the increase. Not retreating, but advancing. Instead of hindering the gospel, Paul's chains had actually helped the cause. Now, how was that possible? Well, through three avenues. Firstly, through Paul's own witness. You see, although confined, Paul did not view his chains as something to chain the gospel. Instead, he sees it as a new opportunity for spreading the gospel. If he can't preach from a pulpit, he's going to preach from a prison. Now, I was thinking as I was preparing this, it may be all too easy just to brush aside Paul's resolve here too quickly. It would be easy to think of Paul, you know, as superhuman and expect him just to be enthusiastic about sharing the gospel regardless of his uh, situation. And yet he was just human. And it must have been tempting for him to feel discouraged in his confinement. Remember, too, that he was removed from his normal sphere of activity. Uh, Paul was a missionary who was almost always on the move, preaching in synagogues when he went into towns, preaching in public places. He was used to a crowd. And here he is in a far more limited sphere. If Paul was in Rome, we get an interesting insight about his situation from the book of Acts. Acts 28 and verse 16 tells us that during Paul's house arrest, he was chained night and day to a Roman guard. And we, we know that these guards probably changed their shifts about every uh, four hours or so. So here Paul had a captive audience. A limited audience, but a captive audience. And you can imagine him sharing the reason for his chains with these guards, one by one by one. Until eventually the word gets out everywhere. As Paul says in verse 13, it has become clear to everyone throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else, probably other folks who were connected uh, with the palace, that I am in chains for Christ. Some folks reckon that the palace guard could have numbered something like a couple of thousand people. Imagine that. Here's Paul in prison, chained just to one guard four hours at a time, and yet the gospel spread throughout the entire palace guard. A little side point here. Did you notice that Paul doesn't claim any converts? See, Paul's delight is in the fact that Christ has been made known as the reason for his chains. Could we learn that sometimes we're on dangerous ground when we focus on results instead of on responsibility? After all, it's not our job to do the converting, is it? That's God's job, and it's between him and the individual. Now, what about the application of Paul's witness? Because I think there's lots that we can learn from Paul's witness in prison. You might think that your situation is quite far removed from Paul's. You know, 
you're not in chains. Although, I have to say, some of you who are going to be studying, the library might soon take on a prison quality uh, after a while. I've been there. Yet, in some respects, your situation may not be that different from Paul's. For like Paul, we can equally find ourselves in situations where we are relatively or totally isolated in our Christian witness. Situations that are difficult with a tempting option is just to stay quiet and say nothing. As Peter was sharing this morning, some of you may have just recently moved to Edinburgh and may have come from a church or a home background where you've had a good Christian support network. You may have come from a class in high school where there were other Christians to support you. But you may be moving into a class or a course or a flat where you are the only Christian. Uh, The same could apply to you in terms of your family. I'm fortunate to come from a family where, by and large, most folks are Christian. But I know that some of you have a really difficult time. You're the only Christian, or one of just a few, in your family situation. Or it's just possible that you're the only Christian in your workplace. And your workplace might be a difficult place to be a Christian. The simple message of encouragement to you tonight is that you can make a difference where you are. If Paul could in his situation, then you can in yours. And you may not think, you know, you might say to yourself, I'm not much of a witness. But you may be the only witness for Christ where you are in your sphere that you find yourself in. That was Paul's witness. Now, there was another group through whom the gospel was advancing. And they were a group of other believers. Paul says in verse 14, if you read it in in your text, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God, that's the gospel, more courageously and fearlessly. Here were some Christians who were perhaps previously a bit more timid, who had been inspired to take up the baton of carrying the gospel to others. Again, this underlines the fact that the gospel is God's gospel. It didn't depend on Paul. And therefore, it wouldn't be hindered just because Paul was in prison. And since Paul's situation hadn't taken God by surprise, it had become a catalyst, in fact, for others to share the word of God too. I think this is a reminder too of the influence as Christians that we can have on other Christians for the gospel someone was sharing with me just the other week how they had spent some time with a good Christian friend. And after just a few hours, they said they'd been freshly infused to share the good news again. And this makes me ask myself a question. Does my life spur on others to share the gospel? I mean, if people spend any significant time with me, do they leave having been refocused on Christ? and feeling more passionate about sharing him with others. If not, why not? A third group through whom the gospel was advancing is also very interesting. Paul mentions a group of people who were preaching the gospel, but from false motives. These folks were trying to grab the spotlight in the wake of Paul's absence. And if preaching the gospel with wrong motives wasn't bad enough, Paul adds that these people were trying to get at him directly. 
they seemed to view Paul as a rival. They envied him. Perhaps because of his significant place in the early church. Perhaps because they were disgruntled by certain theological views that he had. We don't know. Whatever the reason, they were trying to hurt him. As the NIV puts it, they were trying to stir up trouble for him. The New Living Translation, although it's very loose, um, I think it's quite helpful. They quote Paul as saying, They preach Christ with selfish ambition, intending to make my chains more painful for me. You can imagine, perhaps, sore chain marks in his wrists and in his ankles. And here are these folks rubbing his chains further into the wounds. Now, in light of this, I would have expected Paul to have responded in the most cutting of ways, to judge these people swiftly and angrily. And yet, Paul does not do that. And he doesn't do it because Paul can see a bigger picture and something which is more important, as he says in verse 18. But what does it matter, he says? The important thing is that in every way, Christ is preached. The gospel gets out. Now what's Paul doing here? He's stating how radical he is about the gospel. He's putting aside his own concerns for the gospel. Their motives might be false, as Paul, but if they're preaching the true gospel, then I can find joy in that. I can rejoice because of that. Now this doesn't mean that uh, Paul is applauding false motives or envy or rivalry. He's certainly not doing that. In fact, in just the next chapter, Paul shares with the Philippians a better way to live. He speaks to them about unity. He speaks to them about humility. What we do see, though, is how radical Paul is about getting the gospel out. And he is thrilled that it's spreading. Does this all sound a bit radical to us? I need to say it does to me a little And if it does sound so way out, then can we ask, is the problem that Paul is too passionate or that I'm too lukewarm? If Paul spent some time here in Charlotte Chapel, would he stand out? Would he seem an extremist in his gospel passion? I was challenged recently by a quote from A.W. Tozer. Here's what he said. There is a vast difference between a Pauline creed an appalling life. Tens of thousands of believers who pride themselves on their understanding of Galatians and Romans cannot conceal the sharp difference between themselves and Paul. Many today stand by Paul's doctrine who will not follow him in his passionate yearning for divine reality. And we might add in there his passionate commitment to the gospel. Can these be said to be Pauline in any but the most nominal sense? of the word. What a challenge to share Paul's gospel passion. Paul now makes a shift from considering the past and the present. Paul now moves in his mind to consider what is ahead, an assessment of the future. And again, Paul reveals a life goal. Indeed, he comes as close as anywhere else to giving us his life mission statement. And we need to, again, be mindful of Paul's situation. But he was not only in prison, but he was also facing a trial. And this trial could end in only one 
of two ways. Life or death. Freedom or execution. And so in light of this, Paul looks to the future and he shares his hope. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope. And the question now is not what about the gospel. The question is, what about Paul? And as he faces the real possibility of death, what is it that he hopes for? Well, an important part of the build-up is verse 19. Because here, Paul shares his expectation that he will be delivered in his situation. It will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when you read a word like deliverance, it's easy to posit your own meanings into it, isn't it? If this were me writing, then I think what I would mean by deliverance, if I were in prison, in chains, if I were awaiting a possible death sentence, deliverance would mean release from confinement and obviously the avoidance of death. But that's not what Paul means by deliverance. Paul understands deliverance to depend on whether God gets the glory through the outcome. Look at what he says in verse 20. We'll just walk through it together. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Now this is the first bit of it. Paul's hope is not to be ashamed. And if we were to put the full stop there, we would take Paul to mean he doesn't want his reputation damaged, his personal pride. He, he doesn't want to look a fool, to be stripped of respect by this situation. Yet this is not what Paul means. In fact, it's not for his own sake at all, but for the sake of Christ that Paul wishes to remain unashamed. Read on what he says that I will in no way be ashamed, so that now, as always, so this is a lifetime pursuit, Christ will be exalted in my body. So this is Paul's second life goal, that Christ will be exalted, honoured, magnified, glorified in his life, in his body, quite literally. His ambition is that in everything that his body does, Christ will be glorified in it. And here, like earlier on, in case we're feeling too safe, Paul radicalizes the whole thing because he adds that this goal, that Christ is exalted, it's his desire, whether by life, if he's freed, or by death, if he's executed. You see, this is not only a life mission statement for Paul. This is a life or death mission for him. And in it all, Paul's only concern is that Christ is glorified. And he underlines this with one of the most memorable verses in the whole of Scripture. Many of you will perhaps know it. Verse 21. The reason, says Paul, that I can make such a radical statement is that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We don't have time to unpack the treasures contained in those verses. Let me just say that Paul explains what he means by to live as Christ in the third chapter of this book, verses 7 to 11. It involves turning away from all we once held dear, counting past pursuits and acclaim and reputation, and indeed we may add to that, and sins, as rubbish, and turning to Christ and his forgiveness and love 
as we come to know him. That's to live is Christ. And then the second part of the statement is really interesting. To die is gain. If we came at this text with a sort of an untrained eye, we might be tempted to assume that Paul is contrasting two different goals here. You know, if living is Christ, but dying is gain, then the goals of life and death must be two different things, since one's better than the other. But that's not the case at all. Paul is speaking of one and the same ambition, knowing Christ. But he is speaking of it in differing degrees and extents. You see, the reason that death is gain is that for the one who lives for Christ, death brings them even closer to their intended goal, face to face with Christ. Immediacy. How could that not be gain? Now, as we come to a conclusion and we follow that staggering verse, and as we seek to apply this, I'm aware that there are people here at all sorts of different stages in life. You may be here tonight and you're totally unsure as to whether you're a Christian or not. You may know you're not. You may be a young person who is a Christian with your life set out in front of you and now is a key time in your life where you're deciding what you're going to do for the rest of your life, what you're going to live for. You might be a Christian who's a bit older, wondering whether it's too late to reevaluate your life goals. I ask each person here tonight, as I ask myself, what is life to you? If you were to fill in the blank, what would you write? To live is what? And is that goal, whatever it is, fulfilling, lasting, does it even begin to compare with the joy and the lasting fulfillment of knowing Christ and the privilege of making him known? And does it outrun death? That's another key question. Uh, with so many of the goals we've looked at earlier on tonight, death seems to bring them to a finish. But get a hold of this. When you live for Christ, you live for the only goal that not only remains unhindered by death, but which is actually spurred on by death. That is to say, dying increases this goal's realization. We come into the actual living presence of Christ. And so if you're not a Christian, and if, without God's free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, if you've never entered into that right relationship with God, then Christ is the one you need to trust. If you don't have a life mission, and you're just wandering around, if you do have a life goal, but it's led you nowhere, then can I commend this one to you? To live is Christ, and then dying will begin. To the young Christian, <clears throat> let me just say, don't waste your life chasing subsidiary, lesser goals. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with many of the goals that we mentioned earlier. I hope you enjoy sports and you're fitter than I am. I hope that you do aim for good relationships and it's great to aim for a stable and a happy family home. And God loves those who reflect him as they work. But can I say, as a bottom line, these things just don't cut it. Make your choice now to live 
for Christ as long as you live and to share him with others. And finally, to the older Christian. Some of you are a tremendous example to us all of what it means to live out these life goals. You are proving that these two goals are real and fulfilling. However, there may be some of you who know that at some stage you've settled for less spiritually. You might be retired and have eased off a bit with regard to Christian things. Can I just gently say, Paul doesn't say in the scripture verse, till such and such a point, Christ. And then after that, don't worry so much. Paul assumes for himself that as long as he breathes, it's Christ. There's nothing else. Is there something else for you? For me? Or are our goals to know Christ and make him known? For these are two unstoppable goals. Let's pray together. <clears throat>